Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at Autism Cinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word. Leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email on cinemaautism at gmail.com to let us know what you like about the show. In today's episode, we're tremendously excited to welcome back Georgia Kumari Bradburn to the podcast. Long-term listeners will remember Georgia from our earliest episodes before she disappeared off for filmmaking adventures in the distant lands of America. We missed her so much, we decided to bring her back into the fold. She joins Lillian and David in a discussion of a palm door winning film about spirits, hybrid creatures, and a dying farmer. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome back, everybody, to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, my name is David Hartley, and I'm joined once again by Lillian Crawford. Hi, Lillian. How are you? Hello. Very good, thank you. It's a pleasure as always. That's, that's lovely to hear. Thank you very much. And I'm delighted to say that today we welcome back uh, a, a former uh, host of the podcast, somebody who was with us at the very beginning when we started things off and has subsequently had a bit of a hiatus, has left, went to America to do some wonderful things, and is now back. And we are very excited to, to bring her back onto the, onto the podcast. So welcome back to Georgia Bradburn. Hi, Georgia. How are you? Hello. I'm great. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to be back. I, I really did miss doing this just because it's just nice to talk about films in this way with people. So, yeah, I really missed it. I'm really glad to be back. Oh, we are absolutely delighted to have you. Um, I was very excited. When I was emailing you to ask you if you wanted to come back, I was like, oh, God, and I'm sure she's too busy and too, <laughs> she's got too much going on and she won't want to. Um, but, yeah, you, you seemed uh, delighted to be invited back. So that's great. So we have Georgia back on the slate now, which is which is lovely. Um, and and actually, when, when I contacted Georgia, I asked you, um, you know, are there any films in particular from the, the list that we're thinking of looking at that you were interested in? And you picked out uh, this film that we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to do a, a brief little just summary introduction to this film. And then I, I will pass over to you, Georgia, if you want to just say a few things about um, why this film in particular kind of resonates uh, in relation to autism. So the film I'm talking about is uh, Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives. Uh, so this film was directed by Apichapong Virasethakul. I hope I've pronounced that okay. Released in 2010 and it won the Palm Door at Cannes in the same year as well. It tells the story of uh, Uncle Boon Me, um, who is a farmer who is uh, dying of kidney failure. He lives in uh, rural northern Thailand, uh, close to the border of Laos and Cambodia, apparently. And he runs a farm which is staffed mostly by refugee workers. Um, and it, it sort of the start of the film, he's joined by his uh, sister-in-law, Jen, and his nephew, Tong. 
um, as well. And he has a sort of a carer who's uh, coming in to visit him, a carer called Jai. Um, and near the beginning of the film, they're sitting around a table uh, eating a meal with 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 Jen and Tong. Uh, and then suddenly, but quite gently, they're visited by the ghost of Boon Mi's wife, Huey, and also his long lost son, uh, Boon Song, who who also turns up shortly afterwards. Um, Boon Song returns in this in the form of a kind of jungle monkey spirit, a sort of a kind of ape with glowing eyes, this very dark black ape with glowing eyes. And together with his, the living members of his family and the, the, the dead members of his family, or the ones who have passed on, um, Boon Mi starts to reflect on his existence and he looks towards his eventual death and he looks to some of the, the events in his past. Um, and various curious things happen from that point on. Um, the film in general kind of deals with themes. It's a very um, gentle, very slow, um, slow-paced film. Um, and it deals with themes of like meditation and reincarnation, uh, sort of spiritual connection with nature and the natural world, um, hybridities, like hybrids and things like that. And it also sort of uses a kind of curious mashup of various genres, I think, as well throughout throughout the film. So we get a little bit of kind of period drama at one point. We get a bit of almost horror at one point, or it's certainly kind of a kind of monster movie feel. And then um, later towards the end, it, it becomes a lot more, except for one moment, becomes a lot more sort of realism, realistic. So it's an interesting film. It's an unusual film in many ways. Um, and uh, yeah, I found it to be a really, com really compelling thing to watch. Um, so I'll pass over to you now, George, if you want to um, uh, give us a, some thoughts on why you think uh, this film resonates um, from an autistic point of view. Yeah, I mean, um, we were discussing before um, we, we started recording how a lot of people don't really seem to like this film. And um, whilst they're wrong, <laughs> it's a great film. Um, there, I do understand the reasons why this film doesn't really quite work for some people um, in terms of its structure and the way, the way that the film carries itself out. Um, for example, I mean, there's a lot of very long duration shots um, with very little, you know, embellishments with editing or, you know, cinematic facades of any kind. And so for a lot of people, it seems, you know, like, you know, boring or it's, it's taking a long time. I would say from an autistic point of view that this is sort of, um, I mean, it works for me because it is a sort of indexical kind of depiction of reality in a sense it sort of brings us back to the the present moment um which for me as someone who not only experiences um sensory you know sensory trauma sensory um horror but also you know sensory euphoria as well it's something that i appreciate seeing on film and something i've been thinking about in terms of this film is about how um, we're aesthetical, um, like preserves each moment in this film. And he, there's a quote from him that I really like um, about the film's depiction of sort of the, the natural Thai landscape in which he was brought up in. And he says, I want to treasure them and say goodbye to them because they are dying like Uncle Boon Me. And I, f I feel like this is reflected in a way in, in the way the film carries itself, the way 
that everything is very slow, very um, blissful, um, very zen, um, in a sort of not wanting to uh, rip away from each moment, I guess, and trying to preserve it. It makes me think of um, the idea of like um, embalming these moments against time in a way, um, which which in itself goes back to the idea of like realism in film and the idea of indexicality of time and all of those things. Um, but yeah, um, it's a very sensory film. Um, it's very evocative. Um, and also the soundscape of the film is something that really is one of the first things that jumps out to you, I think, especially, you know, as someone with autism who is particularly attuned to sound, there's this sort of like ongoing drone, which is quite, it's quite scary. It's quite spooky, but it's in, in sort of a very grounding way. It's the sort of sound you would experience if, you know, you were out in the wild or if you were more unfamiliar and it ties together the way the film approaches horror and approaches things that um, are usually depicted as quite scary, like, you know, death and the concept of death and loneliness and things like that. And it brings a sense of comfort to it because, you know, there's also bliss in those moments and there's a sort of appreciation for those moments. Um, it's almost sort of mourning the loss of those moments as well. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that made sense, <laughs> but that is, um, that's how I personally link it to my, like my own experience with horses. I'm not sure about, about Lillian or David, but that's, um, I, the first time I watched this film, I really connected with it on a, um, in a sensory way. And I've kind of been thinking about it ever since. And I, I always want to apply it to my own work just because I think it's a beautiful meditation on life and death and, and and the moments that passes by. So yeah, that that's my initial thoughts. Yeah. Uh, it's so <laughs> so wonderful and beautiful to hear you talking about it like that. Cause I feel all of these things with with whereas Epical's cinema, I think um Saul Memoria, his latest film earlier this year in a cinema, which is the first time I've been able to see it really in that sort of space. And it was it was so strange because I saw it at an Odeon in Manchester rather than in like an art house cinema. And um, it's just like so strange going from like loud Marvel soundtracks playing in the foyer and then suddenly just going into a very small screen within a sort of um, multiplex cinema and just having the lights go down and no one else is there and it's just completely silent and with that yeah. film it's it's so striking because immediately there's 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 the sound design is so interesting because there's like these loud noises that come through like a loud banging sound and the whole cinema just sort of rattles like the way that we're aesthetical is sort of carefully engineered the sound design of that film and it's like for me, I mean, like I'm someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder and I, I often have sort of flashbacks and things and, and, and things that, that will like completely unsettle me and throw me off and like give me sort of a form of overwhelm um, that often isn't actually there. And Memoria is kind of about that. And the, the lands, this perfect sort of slow landscape being broken up by these 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 sorts of almost cataclysmic events. I mean, in that film, it, there's a sort of science fiction hue to it that comes later on in the film. And in this, in, in Uncle Boon Me, it's more sort of spiritual um, aspect, but sort of 
it's almost like uh, something sort of puncturing through the perf the perfection of it um that can be quite distressing but it's the way in which that that that's placed um so i th i think that's what i kind of feel when i watch his films is that there is this tranquility and this beauty but also what 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 i find is that 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 that's not always allowed to just sit and just exist that there that, that there are things that that sort of even in when we can remove ourselves it can it can still sort of um permeate and and and, and make us feel a level of distress um so i hadn't actually seen uncle boomy until we were until we were doing this despite actually suggesting the film um <laughs> i think i just thought, thought that slow cinema is is as as a mode of filmmaking is something that I really wanted to talk about in an autistic context and 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 how that as 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 you were saying Georgia about how people can find it boring or or um too slow or yeah, yeah, people people neurotypical friends who talk about slow cinema or often say that it's a chore or describe it as something that's difficult to get through I've never found that I always find that um that slow films and other t sort of types um slow films things like um Simon Liang and um um who's um who's um Sen, um those those films are just extraordinarily beautiful and I'm more than happy to just sort of let films wash over me in a way that sometimes other people struggle with I mean maybe that maybe that maybe in part that's because like we're kind of conditioned now with modern cinema to not watch films like like Uncle Boomy, it surprises me that this is a film from twenty ten and that Verisepical <laughs> is making these kinds of films yeah. <laughs> in 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 the twenty tens into the twenty twenties. It's like when you when people program I think I've talked about this on the podcast before about like sort of relaxed screenings. Mm. And it's like we're gonna do a relaxed screening of the Batman or a relaxed screening <laughs> of whatever like latest action film there is and I think no you cut that that there's a contradiction there mm. I, I would love to see films like Uncle Boon Me in that kind of environment um where you don't necessarily have like like where, where, where the sound levels are managed very carefully so things aren't overwhelming and so on I'm really interested in curating these kinds of these kinds of screenings so I'm, I'm doing one at the the BFI um well Whenever this comes out, I will have done it at the BFI. Wow. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, on um, Les Parapluies de Sherba, and they asked me to do Les Parapluies de Sherba, and I say, like, I love that film. <laughs> I don't know if it's really that relaxed because the musical is quite vibrant. Whereas mm. I would, I would probably program films like this. Um, sorry, I'm waffling a bit now, but I, I think I think that's the, the 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 crux of what I'm trying to get at is that this that this film is. Um, facilitates a certain form of meditation that I think I find as someone who is neurodivergent that that, that there is a there's something comfort of these elements that that I can still find distressing within that landscape yeah no it's I think that's really interesting that you make that connection between um this idea of yes yeah, slow cinema and these kind of relaxed screenings and it also just sort of makes me think about like cinema as a as a place of <clears throat> escape and as as a place of kind of I don't know there's there's always something meditative about watching any film in some respects in, in the cinema but we have become conditioned to expect the fast cutting you know rapid fire narratives that sort of squeeze themselves into 90 minutes um 
and you know you crack through it and, and we're done and and to, to for the cinema to actually ask us to sit still at really and contemplate one frame um for not one frame but one one you know static shot for an extended period of time it 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 still feels unusual and yet it shouldn't really um but it, it does cut against what we what we uh, i suppose what we sort of con- conditioned in looking at in, in contemporary cinema um and yeah i'm the same i know a lot of people who can't who don't have a the, the the patience or feel like they don't have the patience to watch a film that is slow and contemplative like this um and often i don't i mean i find myself sometimes resisting you know if i think oh i want to sit down and watch a film i've got a couple of hours what am I going to put on? I, I do some often drift towards, you know, the things that are a bit more rapid fire. Um, but I mean, having said that, the, the, the two films that this, that this reminded me of um, in some respects watching, and again, this is the first time I've watched this film as well this week. And I loved it. I thought it was incredible. It reminded me a lot of Stalker by Tarkovsky in many ways. I mean, just any, any Tarkovsky in, in some respects, but um, Stalker is always the one that I, um, that I go back to, and I have a stalker mm. poster on the wall behind me. Um, and then the other one was um, the Kurosawa film. Um, uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten the name of it. All, all of a sudden, um, which one? Oh, Describe it. it. Uh, <laughs> Quiz time. <laughs> like it's, 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 it's one of his. This is one of his later films, and it's um, it's about. Oh, that's it. I've got it. Dersu Uzela. Dersu Uzela. If you know, I don't know if you're familiar I don't with. I think Dersu I've Uzela, seen that one. Sorry. Which is about. No, it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful film, and it's it's one of um, Kurosawa's later films. Mm. It's in color, and it's um, it's about a uh, it's about a kind of trapper. It's kind of like this kind of guy, a guy who like lives in the wilds, and he's uh, he befriends um, uh, a group of soldiers, particularly the captain from these soldiers, and it's all about their kind of friendship that develops and he's he lives in the in the forests and he kind of he is Dursu Azela and he knows the forests really well and he knows when it's about to rain he knows where to he knows how to track tigers he knows where to go and so on and so forth it's beautifully filmed and it's just an incredibly put together and the whole point of that film is towards the end Dursu is um is is brought into a town and he's supposed to try and live in the town and he can't, he can't cope with it. Um, and he has to go, go back to the forest. Anyway, it's a very, it's a, it's a really lovely film. And this film reminded me of that because in many ways there are quite slow meditative, mo- meditative moments in Dersu Azela, moments that are, that are looking at the landscape and being sort of in there. And the whole kind of point of the film is, is this kind of oneness, I guess, I suppose with the, with, with the landscape. Um, just in relation to uh, autism, though, I, I, the, what it was this film was making me... I mean, I often, I always watch these films for this podcast and try and keep my sister in mind while I'm watching them mm. and think, well, how does this relate to her and, and what is it? Um, what do we find in this? My, my sister is, is quite an um, energetic and, mm. and busy person and, and sort of um, is not necessarily kind of slow and meditative and contemplative she's always on the go she's always doing things all the time constantly um which is just excitable in that way but she does have this uh, what i often think is whenever we used to go for walks in the countryside as as kids um which was quite often um my my mum and dad were quite big hikers at the time we'd go on these long hikes and and she would start to get like um 
I don't want to use the word commune, but she would sort of like change a little bit than than what she, than how she would be at home, and, and she would drift, and she would be looking at trees, and she'd be looking at, at, at animals and birds and things like that, and she would often end up quite far behind the rest of us because we're walking, we're just sort of plodding through the landscape, getting the walk done, whereas she will be like actually distracted by the by the environment. Um, she always loves. Uh, stopping by rivers and like throwing stones into into streams and she could just do that for, for, for forever like she'd be happy enough just doing that and she's always just in this really happy mode with it and really interestingly um, the other thing that's interesting about Jenny my sister is that she um, has this kind of curious love-hate affinity with ferns she used to be absolutely petrified of ferns she used to have a, a, a phobia of ferns um, and then at some point in her sort of teenage years this totally changed around where she decided that they weren't a threat or they weren't scary and she actually now really likes them so she always goes and picks a fern whenever she can finds one and sort of carries it around with her she likes stroking the the fronds and 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 um feeling it sort of tickle against her skin and things like that but she's also still a little bit wary of them in an interesting way so i've got this really fascinating interest sort of in like what it is that she's finding in this particular plant and I was just thinking about that all the whole time in this film. Not necessarily there's like any significant ferns in this film, but there's like, mm. you know, a landscape, there's the jungle, there's the forest, um, there's this this ever sort of presence of of greenery in, in a lot of it. Um, and how that has this po- both peaceful but also slightly threatening aura that sort of um, is kind of, balanced in this hole which is uh, you're never quite at ease with the place but also you're never quite always threatened and terrified by it so he's got this beautiful delicate balance throughout this film of like sinister imagery of the 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 red eyes that are in the darkness of the trees that are sort of watching you or in the darkness of the Mm. cave that they go to later watching you but then also this kind of solitude and peacefulness and pure kind of relaxed feeling in 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 amongst the 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 natural environment so those were some of the sort of like thoughts that were sort of swirling around in my head while i was watching i think Mm. i i really appreciate you bringing up the the idea of the fear within it and and the meditating between what is what is a comfort and what is what we're afraid of um i mean i made i made a note of um not to get all all film studies (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it it made me think a lot about um, Bazan and mm. and Krakow and, mm. and they're sort of early scholars of film who would talk about how to present reality in film as a response to just kind of like post war post war film theories. Um, Bazan more about preserving time and Krakow more about preserving movement. Yeah. And um, Krakow says something about um, how cinema is a tool to help us to comprehend our reality and not just, you know, the normalities and the, the mundane, but the things that we're scared of mm. and the things that are quite confusing and horrifying. And there's a quote from Krakow that I always think about and that I was I was watching this film again like a couple of hours ago and it I thought about it and he says, um, perhaps Perseus's greatest achievement was not to cut off Medusa's head, but to overcome his fears and look at its reflection in the shield. And was it not precisely this feat which permitted him to behead the monster? And he talks about this in reference to um, the indexicality of film, presenting life as it is, reality, and how 
film is capable of showing our reality as it is, um, but at the same time revealing things that aren't always visible to mm. us in, in real life, um, which I think is also where in this mm. film the, the sort of magical realism comes in, the sort of blurring of the boundary between, you know, the living and the dead, the real and the magical, um, the spirituality and the mundane. Um, and it's it's that sort of reflection of our our own lives um, and the breaking down of that boundary between us that does, like you say, it provides a comfort. Mm. Um, and it's, it, you know, I also, I saw a tweet <laughs> a while ago from someone who said, um, it was something about how um, autistic people, neurodivergent people are more um, in tune with the feeling of awe and wonder because of our, because of our connection with, you know, present moment and with, you know, everything around us. And again, I'm not really, you know, quite sure where that comes from, but I, it resonated with me because as, as a child growing up, I I had a lot of affinity with, with nature and also was sort of, you know, I was always scared of obviously being alone because I live, I come from quite a small town where there was a lot of forests and woods and stuff and I always get lost and I would get quite scared, but I also felt, you know, a, a comfort and attachment mm. to those areas. And so... I think I've never really been able to put my finger on the boundary between those feelings, but I think what this film does beautifully is to illustrate that boundary and sort of, you know, present it in a in a very tranquil, very tranquil, very meditative way. Um, and yeah, what, watching the film itself just is is very calming. It's very comforting um, and scary. I mean, the the moment, the most striking moment for me is when um, Boonmi's uh, wife, uh, Huai, who died decades before, just slowly appears in this is this very extended long shot. It probably goes on for about three or four minutes mm. of them just sitting around the table talking about the food and how the food is, you know, it looks delicious. And very, very gradually she, she fades into the scene, into the shot, and it takes them a while to clock that she's there. And when they do, it's this moment of, you know, of shock, mm. obviously, because, you know, it's not every day the ghost of your of your wife appears at the dinner table. Mm. Um, but their their surprise isn't, their, their instant reaction isn't, what is this, what's happening, why are we seeing ghosts? It's, uh, it's you know, it's why. Mm. It's, it's my wife, it's my, um, uh, yeah, it, it's this person that we love who's come back to us. And... In that way, it sort of normalizes the the supernatural to be, you know, one with our reality, mm-hmm. um, which is unusual. But it it almost seems, you know, really natural yeah. for the film. Mm-hmm. It feels like, you know, a, a peaceful truce between the the living and the dead. Mm. Um, and at first, when you watch it, it's it's terrifying the way that it's so unacknowledged at how weird this is. But then. It becomes, yeah, it becomes really, you know, nice, and we get used to it throughout the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nothing really seems too strange yeah. anymore after that. Um, I think that's a really great thing. Yeah, definitely. And it's so interesting in those scenes that you're talking about, particularly that dinner table scene. I find there's almost there's 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 something of a humour to it, which I know that Lewis yeah. Hefkel is very conscious of, and and, and that that scene in part in the way that it's sort of staged and like it and sort of almost old black and white Hollywood drama type types um, staging around the 
the dinner table that he he was sort of filming that scene and remembered like a sitcom that he'd watched as a child and was like okay we're gonna do it like this um <laughs> but the way that they approach it the way that when like boonsong and the the sort of hairy non-human version of boonsong comes up the stairs and they just sort of yeah hmm well, you've got long hair now. Do think you think you think you might cut it, um, or, or or like um, when I think it is Boon Song, it certainly sounds like Boon Song. Um, it's, it's it's just it's like the spiritual and the um, sort of otherworldly is 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 dealt with so empirically that it's just like it's every, everything in this film is just what it is. Like yeah. obviously, there's a lot of. There is there is an aspect of metaphor, of course, in Allegri, and there's the sequence of the princess and the yeah. catfish, which is something that I think I've certainly noticed a lot of people are like, what the fuck is going on there? <laughs> um, admittedly, slightly the same. But I think that my approach to films like this, and it's the way that I always approach films like David Lynch's films or, or, or film, films that people sort of are like, oh, I didn't like it because I didn't understand it. It's just, no, you just have to kind of just watch it very literally and very empirically and just accept, like, the world in which this is. Like, there's no questioning of the fact that Boon Me can recall his past lives. It's not like yeah. this is based on a real person that that, that Rizev Kool, um met and he wrote this, this book, um, A Man Who Can recall, recall His Past Lives. And um, that you don't question that this person is actually recalling his past lives. You're just seeing it as 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 it happens. And I think that that's, that's something that I find very refreshing. And I actually, I find it very liberating. I mean, I, yeah. I think it's exhausting sometimes, like constantly having to search for, for meaning within things. With, with, with a film like this, you can actually, you get more out of it, I find, by just watching it i mean i think i think i think as as you're right you can discuss these these aspects of it and there is there's a really rich and interesting um idea about cinema and the part and the sort of transience of cinema but also as as as, as you said georgia about sort of bazan's idea in um ontology of the photographic image of of of, embal- of, of, of things being embalmed through 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 photographs and, and through film and um that's something he plays around with a lot. There's lots of different styles. There's that gorgeous, like um, sort of Chris Marker um, Legette kind of sequence with the, with the still photographs that are with the soldiers that that sort of deconstructs what cinema is, what it's become. Is I think one of the last. I remember him sort of saying that that that, that this was like one of the last films made in Thailand on film. That that was something yeah. that 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 it, he was sort of, there's a sort of, there's an element of sort of mourning the way that the cinema has been and and the idea that cinema might not be around forever and that these the, and that the natural world in the way that it's shown might not be around forever so that the act of cinema is sort of preserving that um and 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 again tying it back to what i was trying to say at the beginning of this ramble um is 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 this idea that um you need to 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 keep things alive empirically and visually and that vi- visual sort of memory is is so so powerful and so important um although as as i touched on earlier that that that, that can also be uncomfortable or a negative thing and that we have to remember things that we're not comfortable with you know he 
uh, Boon Me sort of says that the thing that he's uncomfortable with is um, is killing communists yeah. and killing insects, um, which he kind of like says at the same time, and it's sort of this this that that to him he's his sort of evils, the things that he's done in his life that he's sort of um, whether or not these things are actually happening in the present life or a previous life is 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 perhaps unclear, but um, it's. There, there's also a lot of positivity. There's family, and there's the way that family, the memories sometimes come back to us, or things from the past come back to us in a different form to the one in which we first knew them. That there is mm. a sort of similarity and difference. Um, yeah, and I think that it would be, in, yeah, I'd be interested to hear how that sort of connects with ideas of autism and neurodivergence, um, or if indeed it does. I don't, I don't, I don't know what you think. Well, I, I, there is something I wanted to bring up on that, on that in a second, but yeah, it, I, it does strike me as interesting um, that uh, he kind of goes for this dual um, situation where he has both a kind of a, a ghost uh, in a sort of almost quite traditional sense. You know, she just she fades in; she's quite translucent at, at first, although she becomes a lot more tangible later on. And she's actually like tending to him and hugging him in, in later scenes. Um, but she's translucent and just sitting there on a chair and staring quite in a very still way. You know, she's sort of a little bit like Banquo's ghost. She's just staring at uh, Boon Me, but not in a scary way. And in a way that's, oh, I'm, I'm, I just loved that moment when she appeared because it was such a surprise and, um, but a delight and not frightening, but unnerving and uncanny and, and unusual. And you, the, the nephew, uh, Tong, he does, he does get up out of his chair and sort of back away a little bit and he's getting a little bit unsettled. But Boon Me and and, and um, his sister-in-law, who is the sister of the ghost, don't react particularly frightened. They just sort of, oh, you're back, yeah. But it's the way in which the, he has the ghost, but also has the sort of spirit creature, the hybrid spirit creature of, of Boon Song, or what could be Boon Song, or it has become Boon Song in this kind of curious sort of hybrid creature, um, who then relates his own story where he says that he was... He was um, he, he was trying to track down um, monkey spirits in the forest and take pictures of them and ended up actually um, ha- having sex with one of them and become, then becoming this, this, this hybrid creature. So what you've got is this a more, almost more traditional spiritual ghost sort of a fading in and appearing and then this much more kind of mythic kind of hybrid creature that sits in there as well and it's interesting that he just very casually has those two types of spirit um together um and it seems to be that they're there to kind of take boon me to to the next life you know they're there as his um well the 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 the, the word I always think of is the psychopomp is the, the the spirit figure that 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 transports you or takes you to the to the to the to your death or to your next you know next existence and it seems like that, that they're there for that but then they, they kind of hang around for a while and it's not like it's immediate it's not like he dies straight away there's this there's chat and talk going on and it's interesting you picked up Lillian on that moment yeah where he's talking about um his his worries about things that he's done in his past or perhaps in his previous incarnations um where he's killed a lot of communists but also killed a lot of bugs on his farm and what's interesting about that moment is that it's like it's not played for this kind of like shock value where he where where it's trying to say he's equating bugs with communists it, it really didn't feel like that to me it really felt like he genuinely felt as 
um, caring towards the communists that he's killed and towards the the various insects that he's killed on his farm. And it's just got this air of being very gentle, very caring, very, um, uh, yeah, just this really caring person who just make, wants to make sure everyone's all right. You know, he, tr he's, he treats the, the refugees that work on his farm very well. And, um, and, you know, he's conscious of being gentle with the bees and that he's keeps in his hives and so on and so forth. It's just, just, it was just a really interesting moment because it was just so delicately handled and yet all we have is a, again a static shot and two actors just talking in a very naturalistic way and it sort of comes across with this way that's what it sort of felt like to me in relation to autism there was something that i i was looking through a few books because i've been thinking a lot of, um a bit about in the past about um this idea of uh the, the relationship between like kind of autism and nature, because there has been a kind of, there's been a fair bit of kind of like nature writing written by uh, autistic people, or there's this kind of idea of, of this connection between autism and nature. Um, so there's people like the the British um, presenter naturalist, Chris Packham, who's autistic and, and is very interested in nature. There's um, Dara McAnulty, who's a, a nature writer, uh, young young nature writer, and then there's this other um, uh, Naoki Higashida, actually, who wrote uh, the um, uh, Reason I Jump, as well as yeah. he writes about nature in, in many ways. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just sort of some interesting sort of like connections being made here. However, I have a I have a, a friend and colleague called Anna Stenning who writes about um, this kind of thing, and she one of the interesting things that she sort of warns against when we talk about or think about the connection between like autism and nature is this thing she calls ecological sainthood um or be or being a kind of ecological saint i've actually found a bit of her writing so i'm going to read out this little sentence which she has here she says the autistic ecological saint narrative presents autistics as ahistorical beings and as symbols of naive pre-industrialist attitudes to nature rather than as historically and spatially enacted human beings um, the ecological saint reinforces an exclusionary connection between cultural and individual psychological development. So she sort of warns against uh, uh, thinking of autistic people as these like just pure beings who are constantly in tune with nature and, and, and are completely disconnected from reality and therefore, and in some ways are kind of like, our kind of yeah, our saints in this in this world of climate catastrophe, and I suppose it's like Greta Thunberg has become the kind of almost this, this saintly symbol of that, and that's always really I find that really interesting. So there's a kind of tension going on here between like, in many ways, autistic people perhaps do have a or seem to have this this stronger, almost spiritual, almost a deeper connection with na the natural world that perhaps non-autistic people, neurotypical people have forgotten or left behind or dismiss or or don't see as important um and yet also we just got to be careful to sort of not suggest that that yeah all these people are these pure ecological beings that are, are are just best placed for us for you know hugging trees or whatever it, it might be um so yeah there's an interesting kind of um there's an interesting tension there i think uh that that this that this film was was uh, reminding me of while i was watching it yeah. Yeah, I think I think there is some nuance to that because I've thought about that a lot. Because there's the temptation to to think, oh, 
as autistic people, we see things in a more kind of practical way and then therefore prioritize nature over a lot of stuff, which, you know, works in some ways, but at the same time, it's suggesting that, you know, autistic people are these sort of high and mighty beings above yeah. everyone else and have this high sense of intellectualism, which I don't think is true. I think would, I think it's just um, a higher, I guess, sensitivity to these arguments. And um, I think... In that sense, there's this sort of this sort of common affinity with nature, which I don't I, I don't think necessarily means that it's an identification with nature, but more of more of just an appreciation, really. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, someone someone before mentioned um, a, like a comparison with Lynch and about how you know. With Lynch, things don't really seem to make sense in his films. And, I mean, David knows this about me, but, I, I mean, I'm a huge David Lynch fan. That's just kind of what I do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I talk about. Um, and I was thinking about it when I was watching this film, and I thought, in a, in a way, Whereas Ethical's work, and this film in particular, is sort of kind of like a polar opposite of Lynch, in a way. Because whilst both of them, you know, Whereas Ethical has said in the past that his films, you know, are, are very much open to interpretation and that his reading of his own film is uh, is different to how anyone else will read it. And Lynch says very similar things. Um, but in this film, it's sort of, um, I guess it reveals that sort of bliss of mundanity. Whereas in with Lynch in films such as like A Razorhead and Mohan Drive, there's sort of that uncovering of the mundane um, to see, you know, there's a Lynch quote where he says, you know, there's always red ants underneath, like like the like the beetles and blue velvet under the grass. Mm, yeah. There's always that sort of like grimy um, kind of thing under the. And I guess it is also a difference in in culture as well. Lynch's critique is about um, Western American domesticity mm. in suburbia, and and this is about a, a a kind of rural culture that is in a way kind of having a, a a bit of a cultural death mm. um and isn't really um being nurtured in a way yeah. and i think this is uh where Sithical's way of nurturing that that culture and that um landscape that he he was brought up in really um i'm not really very familiar with a lot of thai films i will admit i mean i've i've seen a few of where Sithical's films but i haven't really seen um many more so I'm not very knowledgeable on this topic, but to me, the difference between um, the commentary on mundanity and um, reality is so different um, and quite striking. And I sort of, I feel quite envious mm -hmm. <laughs> of the way in which his um, reality is depicted because, I mean, in some ways there's moments for me that I wish I could capture moments of just complete, euphoria with just really simple things um and also i will mention that the cinematographer for this film um sayumbu mcdeeprom is my he's my favorite cinematographer he he now works primarily with uh luca guadagnino uh he mm. did the cinematography for call me by your name and the 2018 suspiria remake um but the reason why i i love his work so much is because um it sort of takes that these really normal things, you know, maybe like a like a an orange on a tree or a bowl of apples or 
in this film, just a sat family sat around a table and elevates it to something that's um, beyond the mundane. Mm-hmm. It has this sort of ethereal um, quality to it. Um, and uh, he, there's a quote from him that I really like. Ugh, I'm all about the quotes today. Mm-hmm. Well prepared. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My principle is that I cooperate with people. I let things happen and I go by the environment. Mm-hmm. And I, it, we keep coming back to this utilisation of, of nature and environment mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. we have this um, affinity towards it in a way that sort of elevates it to this spiritual level, mm-hmm. which again goes back to that point with with you know autistic people of not trying to connect the two too much as to mm. as to sort of present autistic people as these sort of um i don't know representatives for nature yeah, mm. uh, yeah. but at the same time there is definitely some kind of there's some affinity there which i i identify with i identify with that sort of cinematography that sort of idolizes these things that are just so natural. Well, I like the. I really like the word cooperation there. I feel. Yeah, I feel like yeah, cooperation yeah. is like a really key word in that because that's kind of what it is. It is this. It's the cooperation with nature. It's a cooperation with the spirit world and and with almost actually in an interesting way. What this film is really good at, I think, as well, is this cooperation with your own mortality in in a, in a curious way yeah. of yeah. no of of things will end but also things will also persist in in various ways so you you've got that and that's what you sort of have with this these meditative moments especially when a a a camera stays on on one image for such a long time you get this you get this almost this tension of like when is this shot going to end and when can we move on to look at something else but also this persistence of this thing that you're looking at and this time you get to look at the whole frame and everything that's in there and to try and fathom meaning or or maybe even the lack of meaning from various things that are in that frame or various positionings of the actors or various things that come in and out of it um so yeah it's curious i, I like that word cooperation there and, I, and and i think that perhaps is part of what's going on with this autism nature connection that goes on it's more of a I don't know whether autistic people have this this almost this greater cooperation with the natural world potentially that that mm. that maybe neurotypicals are a bit more skeptical of or have lost sight of in some way. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah, I think that the it's it's so interesting thinking about like what you were saying about um Mcdeeprom's cinematography. He also did um the Arabian Nights films that Miguel Gomez made, which is like sort of Portuguese slow cinema and Films like Taboo and these incredibly long takes. And I know that where Sephical hates angles, he hates <laughs> shooting anything that's not just sort of front on pretty much in long shots. I mean, there aren't really he doesn't really do close-ups. It's 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 mostly long shots. And I think that I like that. I like I like films that don't have that many cuts in them. It's like what my favourite director, Chantal Ackerman, or um to some extent, Terence Malick, although, although Lebedsky can be a little bit all over the place, and so, <laughs> some of his later films is like a little bit manic, but but like that sort of, I I think I I remember talking about this um, earlier this year, maybe last year on this podcast about a relaxed screening I went to for a documentary for a film called River, 
Mm. Um, it must have been this year. It came out this year. Um, which which is the film that I thought was going to be really lush and lovely long shots of rivers, which I just love. I mean, that, that was just <laughs> ideal, just like form of tranquility to just sort of be completely serene when, especially when you're based in like a city and I would like to just be able to go off somewhere and like touch some trees or something <laughs> because I like the, like what you were saying about your, your mm. sister, David, just like mm. touching the, the feel of leaves and things can have a very calming effect and that kind of sensory awareness can, 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 can be really, could be really useful for me in sort of grounding myself as well. Um, and that that film just had like a million cuts a second. It was insane. And it was like drone shots, and the drones were like doing corkscrews down the rivers. And I had to leave because it was like, this is not just because it's just because it's about nature doesn't mm. mean that it's autism friendly. It's like if someone who mm. was putting these screenings together, who was actually autistic, yeah, <laughs> they might actually have gone, hang on a minute, no, this this is not going to go down well with with. Um, an autistic audience, and I, I think that's something that that, that these films, ha- you know, don't do is that the whereas Evercore's films and and from's cinematography is it's, it's just static. It's just let it let it sit and let it look, um, and you gain so much more out of that. There can be yeah. so much more use because you can start really you start paying attention to the details to the things in the background. To things which can emerge, as we've been saying about Hui when she appears, the the wife, that that that's something that you can actually be staring at that shot for quite some time before you even notice what's happening. Yeah. And I think that those moments in cinema are some of my absolute favourites, especially in films like um, the one I always talk about is Jacques Tati's Playtime, where he just yeah. it's just mm-hmm. like it's insane long shots after long shot. It's for a different extent for some. Uh, um, in some ways, because it's a comedy, and you spot different aspects of of comedy within within the frame. It's like looking at a painting rather than looking rather than something that's very dynamic, because then you can keep revisiting it and seeing something else. And I find that a really rewarding cinematic experience. I find that more rewarding than having everything sort of explicitly shoved in your face and and told what you are. I mean, to come back to David Lynch, it's it's kind of um, what you, what, one of his favourite things that he said, I can't remember which, in the context of which film it was, but it's like, could you elaborate on this fact, idea in the film or something? And he just says in this interview, you know, the film is the talking. The, 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 mm. the, the, there's, I don't need to elaborate on this. Like, you interpret it the way you want to. I've, I've, I've said what I needed to say. Um, and I very much feel that with Weiris Evercore's films that that's 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 a similar thing that, that this is the talking this is this is what he's this is his thesis on on memory and reincarnation and life and memory and all of these these ideas and they are within the film you just have to sort of go with him on that sorry David you were going to no, say no, no. something <laughs> I was just going to bounce off what you were what you were saying that, yeah you know I also wanted to say that I think you said that 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 film you were talking about river where everything's like um drone shots and everything's fast and lots of cuts and that that's not the the, the way uh and it's also that's just not the way that we necessarily need to film nature it's like it, it's like this this kind of like almost this 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 expectation that when we have to have perhaps what we might call nature cinematography or like we're filming the wilds or the wonderful creatures or the landscapes that the camera also has to be moving and sweeping and cutting and showing it from different angles and trying to keep up with the pace of the river or the majesty of the mountain or whatever it is 
And you know, you get that with like um, the, the, the like David Attenborough documentaries. Hans Zimmer blasting on the soundtrack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I've been trying to. But I, I was talking to, to my wife about this recently because that new one has come out, like Frozen mm. Planet Two or whatever it's called. And and yeah. we we we're talking about like why we why we've really gone off Attenborough documentaries <laughs> of, of the last few years. And it's partly because of that. It's just it's 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 it's. it's it's cinematography trying to be nature, whereas actually mm. all it needs to do is just sit still and show you nature, right? Because mm. nature is amazing enough as it is. And and the more we, my, my wife and I go out, or whenever you go out and you just like find her in an amazing waterfall, you just sit there and look at it. You don't have to be like charging down it and through it. <laughs> I mean, maybe you can and that'd be fun, but like in there's, there's a beauty in a piece. And I think, yeah, you're right. This film, um, it, it understands that. I mean, it just knows that that's that's what. I mean, I think about the bit in the cave. Mm. I, um, I mean, there's movement in the cave because there sort of has to be, but they're moving quite slowly through it, and they've got torches, so they're sort of lighting up bits and pieces of the cave every now and again. You're just catching glimpses of the walls and so on, and yeah, I don't know that that, that sort of. And there's a bit where they get to a, a chamber where it's very sparkly, and they sort of pick out all this kind of almost like starlight of these kind of crystals that are embedded in the wall, and it's just. And again, the, the camera is still at that point and the, the actors are walking around and shining their torches and catching different bits of the rock. And you don't need this fancy, flashy cinematography to sort of bring that out. So it comes mm. out much better without it. I think that's what mm. I wanted to say. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think... So I, when I was shooting my short film earlier this year, um, I, I had a friend who, you know, is a very good cinematographer, but um, was very, you know, tech... Right focus you know, about lenses and, and angles and all these things. And he kept saying, you know, you have to use this lens, you have to use this this very specific vintage lens to give this very specific effect. And I just thought, you know, <laughs> why though? Because the, the point of what I was trying to make was something that was very simple and very sharp. And I just thought, I just want to use a very basic lens and I want to focus on the image, not the tech that I'm using. Um, and this person didn't really seem to understand what I was saying and how, you know, the fact that this this sort of really beautiful vintage lens with that could create amazing flares and all sorts of that, which just seemed very arbitrary to me. Mm. It didn't serve the purpose. And I think there is a tendency in cinema to disregard the purpose of the material in favour of what can I do with the mm. medium before me? Like what what really flashy things can I do? Which is something that really annoys me about a lot of films now is like, how can we use everything to do everything? And it's like, I feel like this, the subject matter is being totally yeah. disregarded. It has to be true and loyal to what you're making. And um, yeah, I remember you saying, um, someone saying about th this being shot on film and how difficult it was because um, it's the last Thai film, yeah, shot on 16 millimeter and how it really does serve the purpose of the film of capturing those those moments um, without the sort of um, the artifice of editing and embellishments as uh, with like Foley and all these things, which you may well have been used, but, you know, it's not something that you pick up and yeah. go, oh, they used this in this shot and they, they did this technique with the camera. Like it, it does, it just renders it totally arbitrary. And I think there's a tendency for us to want things to be simple so we can consume the story and the image and really take in the image without any um, distraction. Um, I mean, this is more of a, a, a Marxist critique, I guess, but a lot of media is is conditioned to be consumable mm. qu 
quickly, you know, short form. And I think, um, the yeah, like we've, I mean, we've, we've said this before, but the appeal of short, slow cinema and, and cinema that is very simple is the idea of just sitting and watching it. Yeah. And letting it um, wash over us and experiencing that, that sensory journey that the director, you know, has worked so hard to curate. Um, and yeah, the, I think I will admit I, I'm someone with ADHD, so I struggle to, I struggle to sit still. I struggle to not be distracted. I struggle to appreciate things in the moment, but something like, like this film does grab me in a sense mm. because of how simple it is and how slow it is and how peculiar and strange it is. I think, um, I think I have this longing to to be part of that moment and to be, you know, connected to what I'm seeing, um, which really appeals to me. Yeah, it's part, I mean, it's so interesting about, like, how how one interacts with, with, with films like this. And it, it's, in many ways, slow cinema often feels more akin to video art than it does to sort of cinema, I suppose, in, in sort of, Particularly when we're talking about things like like how David Attenborough films uh, documentaries, sorry, now look more like a, a Zack Snyder film, like with like <laughs> slow slow motion animals yeah. and 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 sort of the, these these kinds of techniques and the 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 putting the technology as as you were saying sort of before the nature itself, which I find yeah. egregious and 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 does a disservice to the wonder and awe that that, that these things are, also, are trying to tap into. But the idea of video art and sort of and the space in which we experience it is really interesting. And I find I find it much harder. Like I mean I was watching Uncle Boon Me on my computer screen at my desk. I'm not gonna be as immersed in it yeah. and as paying as much attention right. as I would be if I was in a space specifically sort of designed to um for that form of interaction, like when I was saying about about watching Memoria, or just something of going into a screening room, lights yeah. go down, and you and the brain changes the way it interacts with these things, the way it absorbs that is is different. And this was part of a an installation project called Primitive, which I, I have I don't know what the rest of the installation was, but video art's a really interesting one. When I've seen films in a gallery space, it completely changes it because often you'll come into something like halfway through it and you'll watch it around to the beginning again, which is kind of how people used to see films back in the 1940s when you just sort of show up to the cinema and just like, oh, this is where we came in, uh, becoming a, a phrase <laughs> in the English language. Um, that that you do get the, these kind of. I remember um, there was a Derek Jarman exhibition that I went to in Manchester. Um, mm. And earlier this year, this year is the time is so disjointed at the moment for me. <laughs> um, I suppose it is for everyone, but the, 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 I remember going and seeing Blue for the first for the first time in the gallery space. I'd seen Blue many times. I've seen Blue on a laptop. I've seen Blue um, on a television, trying to recreate what it would have been like when it was first broadcast in the nineties, with like the curtains closed and listening to the sound behind me. I've tried to recreate different settings seeing blue in a gallery in just walking in and suddenly being in this in this room filled with client blue and hearing those sounds coming through a sort of specially designed space completely different completely transforms the way you interact with it um 
So I, I, I don't know how how Wierzewka wanted this film to be seen. I don't know how how he wants it. I know I was surprised when I saw that that uh, Memoria had been released on 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 DVD and Blu-ray because I thought that the whole point of Memoria was that he never wanted it to be shown outside of cinema. That he only wanted it to be exhibited in cinemas because the sound design was so specific and so carefully engineered that you have to listen to it with cinema speakers around you. Um, I don't know. Um, I suppose distribution companies can overrule um, what an artist wants, how, how an artist wants their, their work to be experienced. But I think that that kind of like that kind of sensory experience can be really overwhelming. I I I, I do find that that an overwhelming thing. I went to see um, "Don't Worry, Darling" on Tuesday, which is oh, yeah. absolutely <laughs> dire film, and I, um, I, 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 but it was it was so noisy and loud and ridiculous. Yeah. And I just, I, I mean, I, I always used to just sort of force myself to sit there and watch it. In this case, I just had to take myself out of the cinema for a few minutes and come back in because I was just getting a bit too like, what, what? This is this is too. Too big a screen, too many people, too too loud a film, and I just needed to excuse myself. Um, I I suppose that's that's something that a gallery space kind of allows. Really, is that you can just come in and go when it's. Yeah. And I, I mm. think it, there's there's a fluidity to this kind of this kind of cinema that I really really love. Um, where actually you could probably watch Uncle Boon Me at any point and it wouldn't really yeah. matter where. <laughs> right. um, I think is kind of what I might be driving at is that like, I like films where it's like, you could just come in at any point and still get something out of it, get something out of that like recreation of, of nature that it's important to remember that we're seeing a mediated version of this landscape and the way that it's being captured but also that there is an element of reality to it. And I think like, even just like putting my headphone, like um, headphones in and being able to listen to that soundscape that you were talking about um, at the start of the podcast and like the sounds of animal noises, the wind, the rain, the, the way that the leaves sort of rustle together. It's so beautiful and so um, enchanting that it, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not some, I'm not a Buddhist. I don't, <laughs> I'm not like really into like that kind of spiritualism, but it's something that I definitely feel an element of when watching this film um, that, that I think's well, what, what we're of course trying to make you, you feel is, is, is to just make you sort of stop for, it's not even that long a film. It's, yeah. it's, uh, like it's we're not making we're not, we're not suggesting people uh, yet um, sit down and watch like a Lav Diaz film that's like ten hours long. Mm -hmm. This is this is this is what a hun uh, an, an hour forty. Yeah, yeah, it's under yeah. two hours. Even so even the sound of yeah. of Huai taking out his dialysis tube, the sound oh, of yeah, that yeah. is just the drip 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 drip, and it's mm. you know essentially the sound of death. He's about to die, yeah. but it's such a beautiful sound, and it's so yeah yeah. Mm. Mm. I wonder if I, I I know we've been recording for a bit for for an hour now, but I, I wonder if we do need to 
um, address the the princess and the fish sequence a little bit more directly, <laughs> um, because we, what, what we have in the middle of this film, and I, and I agree with you actually, Lillian. It's a really interesting point that you could probably chop this film up and put it in any kind of order whatsoever, or come in at halfway through and, and watch a bit of it. You know, it's that kind of interesting that it can it does sit in that way. But I did want to I did want us to sort of reflect on the princess and the fish moment. Um, for people who haven't seen the film, there's a, a sort of in the middle of the film, there's you suddenly we're suddenly taken to sort of a kind of well, it's almost like a period costume drama sequence mm. in, a, in a way. We've got this princess who's being carried through the jungle um, by servants in a kind of one of those, what don't we call them, those carry chair things that they, they have. She comes to the water, comes to a waterfall with a pool and um, it, we sort of enter this much more sort of like we're in a mythic space. We're in a, you know, we're in a, le- a space of story and legend now all of a sudden because she's looking at the, her reflection. She's got a kind of a scarred face and she looks at her reflection and sees a kind of a face without a scar and she sort of wants this uh this kind of youthful beauty that she's lost at some point perhaps um she also has a servant with her who's who um is being quite affectionate towards her and then he leaves and then all of a sudden a catfish appears and, and starts talking to her and then she gets into the pot to the water takes off all of her garments and her kind of jewelry and then this catfish basically makes love to her um, and that's kind of the sequence. That's such a beautiful way of putting it, David. Sorry. Well, I think <laughs> it makes love. It's very it makes strange. love to her. Fish makes love to her. It's a very strange moment. And like, and it's one of those like, yeah, as you say, they said and mentioned it earlier on. The like people who have watched it, like, what the what the hell is that that about? Why is that there? What's going What's going on? But I thought we'd better um, bring it up and address it. And 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 yeah, I, I mean, I I was surprised by that moment and and the sequence, and I thought that it. What did make me laugh, and it sort of made me think this is slightly incongruous to what's come before and after this moment. Um, but for me, it, it still fit; it still worked. I mean, it was we we I, we sort of transitioned, in, as I say, into this world of, of mythology. And people who might come out of this film and say, well, "What the hell was that fish sequence about?" Well, it's like, well, there's there's plenty of that kind of thing in Greek mythology, Roman mythology. Like, it's this is the sort of thing that. It's, it's pretty constant in mythological stories of the past, this kind of communing between animals and humans and um and it's and it's and and talking animals you know and and princesses and and um you know wanting to be this meditation on life and death and beauty beauty and 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 whatever um so yeah i don't know i i wanted to i was curious to think uh, what what you guys made of this moment. <laughs> that, that's shut you up, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it. Yeah, I. I don't really know what to make of it, but I kind of enjoy that sensation in itself. I mean, there's obvious mm. sort of like, yeah, contemplations about youth and beauty and and trade trading your jewels and and because you know obviously she sheds her like bracelets and jewelry and gold in the pool when she's having sex with the fish, and I saw that almost as sort of like a a, a trading away. Yeah. worldly goods for like eternal beauty mm. you know that sort of thing um but it is um just this moment of just complete absurdity and almost like relief in the mm. film it's sort of like a, a like an intermission in a way yeah. where you can just from this this very slow meditation meditative film which is still you know it's still meditative but it's also just it's a it's it's a shock but it's also like we've said before, mm. it just the way it's shot, it just looks completely normal. Which, by mm. the way, it's not. <laughs> it's not normal. Um, no. 
<laughs> but, but it's yeah no I, I i enjoy i think that's just why i love lynch though i think i think i enjoy that sense of you know what yeah. the hell's going on yeah. and 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 the wonder of you know what what was the the hypothesis behind this scene yeah and the fact oh i probably will will never know the director's intention and that's you know that's fine you know yeah it's between between the filmmaker and 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 whoever's on the team so yeah, I, I, I had no idea, <laughs> but I enjoy that. I, 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 yeah, I agree. I, I think that the the intermission idea is really mm. the, the point that it, if it feels on Yerick, it's like it's like a dr- a dream. Or I almost interpreted it that it was almost like Boon me sort of having like this is the sort of story that he would have been told as a child or something, mm. and that it's like it's like a memory of 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 of, of a sort of formative. Story. I mean, if I was told a story as a child where 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 a princess fucked a catfish, I'd probably be like, "Yeah, that that that's a memorable one <laughs> in memorable. the canon." So yeah. so I, I I think that maybe that's that's what it is. But it's beautiful. I mean, it's mm. it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna lie. But like the way she's her sort of um, pleasure and oneness with with the water and with, with nature and the sort of especially as she has there's a disconnect of self in that sequence as well isn't there because the the reflection is sort of moving differently to the way that she's moving mm. and the, as you say that the, the image is different to to her own one but there is a sort of and that she sort of pushes off this 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 man that she's almost sort of rejecting other people um something to do with the self that's probably the, the, the sort of thing that, that that maybe that's maybe that's the idea of, of that scene i'm not really sure but i think that, that that yeah i think you're right to just sort of that that's that that's the sequence that i had in mind when i was sort of saying that we just accept it as it is and mm-hmm. the way that we see it and that i saw a lot of letterboxd reviews that were like laughing at this scene mm. <laughs> being confused about this scene i just think well it's just there you just accept it in the same way that you do in in a david lynch film it's like okay now we're inside the radiator or no no now yeah. we're um i don't know <laughs> whatever sort of moment there is in a, in a lynch film and you just go that was nice um oh okay we're back to to what's to what to to, to the main plot i think that it's the way that that the mind works um yeah. I think that it's mm. certainly the way that a neurodivergent mind works. I, I, I mean, I, I can't speak to neurotypical mindsets, but um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's certainly the way that my brain would. I, I'll just suddenly think of these things. Or, I mean, I, th- I think that's 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 the way I interpreted the whole film was that it's almost like the way that things aren't always neatly ordered chronologically. That memory is sort of almost like a kind of mind palace to use that awful sort of yeah. Sherlockian <laughs> phrase yeah. um where where everything is sort of around us and that and that and that when we find things or when we find memories they they come to us in a slightly different form to the one that they were actually lived in yeah mm. um and i suppose it makes sense for real memories to get entangled with stories and fables and 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 fictions and 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 the way that those things sort of mesh together and i think for that that's that's what the film's doing, as you said, David. But it's like I said, I said that you could sort of come in at any point, but whereas Efko has clearly put these things in a, in an order yeah. that he he's intended, but at the same time there is that sort of fragmentary style that some things are very clear. Like that, that, that I mean, the princess sequence is almost like a film within a film, in in, mm. in 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 a sense that it is its own contained thing. It's it's a lot more fluid and clear than 
than say something like the uh, the use the use of still photographs is that that that's something yeah. that is disjointed and and comes back through a different form of memory and a different medium of memory. Um, it's amazing how much is packed into this film. Yeah, it is. Isn't it? I mean, we haven't even talked about sort of the ending, well, the which ending, yeah. which feel which feels like it's in a completely different. There's suddenly very urban and suddenly in yeah. in a sort of city setting and 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 people watching televisions and things. It's almost like we've gone from completely different time periods and, and yeah. places that this the sense of displacement that we get through through watching mm-hmm. this film. I think that yeah, I think that's what makes it so unique and so beautiful. Yeah, and the 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 the, the shot of well, the 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 small scene of the of the funeral where you sort of get this sort of cut round and and we see the I don't know tomb or whatever it is that it's like all with all the lights on it the fairy lights on it it's all very gaudy and brightly lit and yeah as you say the ending where the 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 yeah the curious ending which again was another moment much like the uh, the appearance of the of the ghost was another moment that just made me just thought was completely mm. delightful and just incredible and and I didn't really want to interpret what was happening at that point uh, other than just to sort of be delighted by this moment because we've we've moved into mm. what feels like you know Boonmi is now dead has now passed on and and at that point it feels like the film is going okay that all the magic stuff is has stopped for now we're going to go into realism now here's everyone you know at his funeral marking his death and then his um his his sister-in-law Jen and and his and I think now a niece who who are like sorting through some of the um, messages and, and, and bits of money that have been received by by their family. You know, this is all very normal. And then all of a sudden, we have um, the nephew uh, Tong, who is now a, who is now a monk. Or I don't know if he was always a monk, but at this point, he, he has become a monk. And he comes and visits them. And then all of a sudden, you get this really interesting moment where they're all watching telly, and he wants to go out for food. And then him and Jen do go out for food, but just as they're leaving go out for food, they see themselves still sitting on the bed watching telly. And it's just, just, it's be- just again, it's just like another moment. It's just like, oh, okay. That, mm. Yeah. Mm. And it's all about this transientness, this this porousness of time, of space, of memory, of narratives that we think about. And I think you kind of write in a way, Lillian, that, the, that perhaps this is a kind of a story that he's been told and now he's sort of, dreaming it or imagining it with the, with the princess and the fish and then later he's, we've got the the much the sort of the photographs of the the soldiers so that perhaps there is a perhaps that's a sharper sort of still more still memories there of his time perhaps as a soldier or his, or wherever that relates to and then here we have this realistic setting and but then this sudden curious mo- again moment of magic realism which is again sort of porous and and diving through and around and across boundaries yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just it's magical and uh, in a in a very pure sense, in a way that's not forced or tr- or trite. Uh, and it is, uh, yeah, it's remarkable to to witness. Really, I mean, it made me think. Sometimes I have this um, this longing to want to be want to be outside of myself, yeah, and to see myself in the setting that I'm in, and to watch, you know, myself looking at the whatever it is that I'm enjoying, whether it's watching TV or being out in nature and being able to like capture the moment mm. of 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 being in, in in that moment essentially. It's it's very, you know, paradoxical. But again speaks to the motif of the photographs in the film. Um I think I mean the ending 
is is very open, but it resonated in the sense of wanting to wanting to look at one's life um, in a reflective way and and reflect on you know not just the big moments but the very small the very small um, mundane moments like just you know watching TV with your family and being able to look and, and acknowledge that you know this was a good moment you yeah. know I felt I felt calm I felt serene and um, I I feel like a lot of people don't really do that sort of reflecting now just because of how fast-paced everything is and it's always good to, um, you know, to look outside yourself and, you know, appreciate appreciate what's going on. It's a very preachy way of putting it. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> That's very nice. But um, in relation to, yeah, the spiritualism of the film, it really it really does resonate. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Well, I think that's probably a good a good way of uh, rounding things off. There, we've managed to, to to quickly squeeze in the the princess and the fish and the mysterious ending. So I'm glad that we got to those. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we'll we'll wrap it up there then. So thank you, uh, thank you very much to to the both of you, to Lillian and to Georgia. Welcome back, Georgia. This was a thank wonderful you. way of bringing you back into the fold. I'm really glad we managed to do this. Um, apologies to anyone who's listening who can hear strange noises in the background. Um, those are my guinea pigs who are being very lively this this afternoon. And I don't know why there's one of them in particular that's knocking around. So if you've heard that on the recording, that's what that is. <laughs> talking with talking about communing with nature. There you go. Um, anyway, we will be uh, we'll be back in uh, in a couple of weeks' time, no doubt, with a with another episode. But for now, thank you very much for for listening um, and goodbye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema, and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.